0: Hi, and welcome to Sophos Security Chet Chat 155 for the 10th of July, 2014. As you can probably tell, I'm not Chester. That's because I'm John Shire filling in for Chester this week. With me today is Paul Ducklin. Welcome, Paul. Hi, John. Uh, all the way from uh, Summary, Toronto. That's right. It's uh, indeed summery. Uh, the thunderstorms and the humidity have settled in, and so uh, we're in for a long, sticky summer, probably. So let's start today with Patch Tuesday, which just passed us on the 8th of July. And for the TLDR version, can you give us sort of a 60-second reprisal of both Patch Tuesdays, the one that occurs on the second Tuesday of the month and the one that occurs on the Tuesday nearest to the middle of the month? So we haven't had Oracle's patches yet.
1: Uh, The only thing that you need to know at this moment is, of course, that Oracle has officially essentially disowned XP, because XP is out of support uh, for Adobe and Microsoft. It's sort of business as usual. Uh, Adobe put out two updates. There was one to Shockwave, which apparently didn't include security fixes. Flash fixed a bunch of vulnerabilities, including remote code execution holes. Microsoft, there were six bulletins. Two of them were critical. One's the usual cumulative update to IE. You definitely want that. The other one is particularly interesting. The other critical one that closes remote code execution holes It's actually a bug in the Journal application. Now, I hadn't even heard of Journal, and I didn't know about JNT. That's Juliet November Tango Files. Uh, Journal is a a kind of handwriting program that lets you scroll little notes. Turns out that you can booby-trap a JNT file so that you can get remote code execution. Unfortunately, the Journal program is little known, but installed by default on all non-server versions of Windows. If you've never heard of journal files before and you're not using them in your organization, consider going to your web filtering and your email filtering product and adding that .jnt file. If you don't need them, they do now pose a risk. May as well block
0: them off. Thank you, Paul. And as as our colleague Chester quipped this week on Twitter with the uh, demise of Java on XP, XP users are now more secure than ever.
1: (laughs) Yes, I thought that was quite amusing, except of course, what you'll end up with is a a no longer supported operating system with a no longer supported version of Java. So I know we've said this any number of times before. If you haven't got round to turning Java off in your browser yet, do so today. If all your websites still work like before and you didn't need it after all, you'll never need to turn it on again and you will not regret it.
0: All right, well, speaking of Windows XP, one of the places where Windows XP still enjoys a little bit of heartbeat is within the uh, POS or point of sale terminal arena. And this week, there was some news about a Russian gentleman by the name of Roman Selesnyov, who has allegedly hacked a bunch of POS terminals on the Internet, gathering uh, credit card data in order to resell that. Now if uh these charges and turn out to be true he could face up to a maximum penalty of 97 years in prison and 750,000 US dollars in fines. Now um the the Russian government's denying this. They're saying that it is a ploy to get Snowden in a trade. Uh his father who is a member of the State Duma, or the legislature, uh is uh, adamantly backing his son and saying that he is not guilty. Uh, I'd be interested in hearing a little bit of your thoughts on this, Paul. Well,
1: I guess, point of sale breaches, you know, malware all over payment terminals. What do we have? Target, Neiman Marcus, a whole load of uh, breaches in the US where, you know, not just a small number of terminals, but, you know, in Target's case, almost their entire network in the continental United States of uh, point of sale devices with malware on. Seleznev's crimes, alleged crimes, are supposed to have happened, uh, I think, from 2009 to 2011. So you imagine they probably were XP computers, even if they're not now. Uh, And he has the usual laundry list of charges that he faces. As for whether or not he might be traded for someone like Edward Snowden, you sort of get the feeling that if he is guilty and he is convicted in a court, that in the US, they're pretty keen on actually bringing cyber criminals to book these days. Uh, I wonder if they'd think that it was a big enough swap for Edward Snowden. I'm understanding was that he he went to the Maldives or something, perhaps for a vacation, and ended up getting arrested while he was outside Russia, probably wishing he didn't have that vacation now.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I guess you'd say he's probably ahead of the curve when it comes to POS malware, seeing as it does seem to be uh, de rigueur right now to be able to uh, compromise POS terminals. All right, well staying on the Russian angle, it also uh there was also some news this week of um the Russian government trying to pass some legislation stating that any data that is concerns Russian citizens be stored within Russia's borders. So for example, if uh Facebook had some Russian users, all of their data would actually have to be on a server that was within the Russian uh country's boundaries. And so it would require them to, you know, basically build, either build another data center or, or do some co-location with some existing data centers there, but, but really just have that data physically residing within the borders of Russia. Some claim that this is sort of an anti-NSA, anti, uh, you know, spying tactic, um, and it's, others claim that it's more of a pro-FSB or the, the former KGB uh, tactic in order to make it easier for the Russian. Uh, services to mine data on their own uh, on their own citizens, and still further, there's there's some claims that this is just another salvo in the uh, in in the Russian government's uh, eroding of privacy and online freedoms within the country. And I'd be interested in hearing a little bit more about what you think about this.
1: Well, it's one of those things, isn't it, John? Where you you sort of can't fault them, really. It's not the first country that said you know if you're going to offer cloud services, then we want to know that that data and the servers are inside our jurisdiction, just to keep everything absolutely clear. I mean, with or without the Edward Snowden revelations, it does seem to make sense when there are so many jurisdictional complexities thrown up. You know, how do you get access to your own data? Who else is allowed to mine it? Are, if you have privacy rights in your country, are they eroded by the fact that you agreed to it to be stored in another country, and so forth? Uh, now, whether Russia would make this absolutely compulsory so that if you are Russian you wouldn't be allowed to use a service that stored your data outside the country even if you wanted to, that might be a step too far because it would be cutting off your nose to spite your face if you know what I mean
0: so in the spirit of doing right by your customers, we saw an interesting example out of uh, Australia this week where the division of Sony down there sent an email to some of their my Sony members where it was basically saying you know we 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 take your personal and financial information uh, with absolute priority and we want to do right from a privacy standpoint we we've got some links that uh you know send you the privacy policy but also there's an image that actually employs you to log in and update your sony account which is a bit of a face palm in my opinion it seems like this phishing thing just won't go away we've been talking about phishing for so long we've been educating our users for so long Uh, We've written about fishing and is it a fish, is it not a fish for so long, yet these things keep coming. I mean, what's to be done about this? I don't think we're saying to anybody, thou
1: shalt never use clickable links in emails. For example, if you subscribe to the Naked Security newsletter, and I do, every day you get a digest that has the links to the stories. I like to see the story, click on it, and go across to Naked Security. I don't have a problem with that. But I just wish that this idea that, hey, here are some links. Oh, by the way, you could log in. Click here. It's just softening people up for phishing. So clickable links to stories where you're not expected to give away any personal information are one thing. But resist the temptation then also to have a link that says, and this will take you straight to a login page where we're going to be expecting you to type in username and password. And that way, if you never put login links in your emails, only the crooks will ever do it. So if you see an email with a login link, you know it's a fish. You don't even have to stop to think about it. Not that I feel strongly about it, John.
0: <laughs> and I agree. I think emails as a delivery mechanism for information from a, a vendor or service provider to their con- their customers, it's not going away. It's just too convenient. And, and frankly, it's too economical not to use that. But uh, I think where, what we're seeing sometimes, as, as we often see with, with technology, the pendulum swings one way and then swings too far the other way. If we can sort of nip this one in the bud a little bit and say, let's let's agree on some generally acceptable guidelines for things that we can and cannot do with email, um, such as, yes, it's okay to include a link. But as with the case with the Sony uh, email, you know, you had these links that looked like URLs, but they actually redirected you to a different Uh, URL somewhere else in order to track some of your behavior, right? That that, that just doesn't seem right to me either. Just say, go to
1: our main page, and there you will easily find your way to our privacy policy, and then make it easy to find on your main page. That way, you kill two birds with one stone. You tell people in the email how to find it forevermore, and for people who are only interested in going to your website, You've actually gone through the exercise of making this apparently really absolute priority information easy to locate. I don't think really something like that, a privacy policy, having a electronic direct marketing tracking link on it. It, it seems a little oxymoronic to me in, at, at
0: any rate. So I think, yeah, we both agree that there are generally accepted ways that we can deliver emails to consumers and customers in, in a way that uh, makes it less fishy sounding, if you will. So we've just talked about something that is old and uh, continues to be present. Let's talk about something that was thought to be old and seems to be new again, and that is the story uh, this week about the VBAs resurging, VBA macros, for those who aren't familiar with the acronym, that's Visual Basic for Applications. And uh, so a colleague of ours, Gabor Zapanos, or as he's affectionately known, Zappy in our circles, uh, he, he wrote a paper called uh, VBA is Not Dead, in which he shows us how it's easy using social engineering tricks to get users to run these you know macros uh, that contain malicious payloads. We've stopped opening .exes, and we've got mail gateways that, by default, drop double attachments like .zip.exe but when something comes in in the .pptx or .docx format for example uh you know we're more than ready to open them so can you go into that a little bit more and explain to us exactly what was happening here
1: those of our listeners who can remember the last millennium the closing years of the 20th century will remember that word and excel viruses that spread as macros scripts that were embedded in-document and and spreadsheet files were the number one problem of the day. And Microsoft made some significant changes, rather belatedly, I must say, but they did in the end, change the way that macros worked, turned them off by default in Office, and malware spreading that way kind of disappeared. As Zappi wrote in his paper, you would almost have called it extinct if you were a malware researcher, And then to his surprise, as you say, suddenly in the course of this year, uh, it's easily shot up again. You never need to have a document where you have to enable macros to be able to see it. So if you see that, it is a trick. And what the crooks are hoping you'll do is the document's just a decoy to get you to run a program they sent from outside. And if you think about it, that's just remote code execution. Always a bad idea to run stuff that came from an unknown source.
0: Yeah, and what's interesting about this particular piece of news is that we've seen some examples of this tactic being used more in the APT sense. And uh, what seems to be, I guess, new about this is, is now the, the crooks are starting to use it more en masse in terms of uh, going after the general public in, in terms of trying to get people infected as, as opposed to these more pointed attacks that we've seen with uh, some specific APT campaigns that uh, have occurred in the last uh, couple of years.
1: Well, it's not really an advanced persistent threat if it's using the technique of the 1990s. It's just one that happens to work. But as you say, yes, uh, my understanding is that Zappi's measurements have actually taken him from seeing hundreds of samples to seeing thousands or tens of thousands of samples of these things. So as you say, it does look as though this seems to be giving the desired yield to cyber crooks who aren't after Uh, sort of pinpoint penetration of one company, but after compromising as many people as they can, with the aim to making money out of their computer or out of their bank account.
0: Yeah, and it would appear that, uh, you know, as with anything related to the internet, nothing truly dies these days. So that concludes the podcast, and and normally Chester tries to end the podcast on a positive note, and and some of the stories, actually most of the stories we talked about this week uh, have a bit of a negative tone to them, so I thought I'd reach back into history a little bit for some positivity. And it appears that uh, 33 years ago, on July 9th, 1981, Nintendo released the game Donkey Kong. This also marked the debut of their future mascot, Mario, who has been spending his countless days and nights rescuing princesses in need. So if, if that's not a positive, I don't know what is. And uh, taking the analogy a little bit further, perhaps what we need right now is an internet plumber to help us get out of some of the mess that we've created for ourselves.
1: Internet Mario, or, as I believe he is now promoted
0: to, Super Mario. Super Mario, indeed. That truly does conclude the Sophos Security Chat, chat 155. For all the latest security news, including these stories and more, please visit nakedsecurity.sofos.com. And until next time, stay secure.